following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All of you guys over here on my right, when you came in, we're hearing the sound effects we had installed for the uh, series this uh, week, the sound, the wind coming through, hopefully that's cleared up, but if it picks up at any point while I'm preaching, just consider it a sound effect because it's kind of ominous sounding, and uh, we'll go with that. We're going to read verses 1 to 37 again, this entire chapter. If you can, please look at a Bible there in front of you to pay careful attention to what we read. We're going to read it every week until we are completed, until we have completed the section. That way you get a good sense of the flow and the context of what is going on here in Mark 13. So if you will, please look at verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations." And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, 
but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Father, again, we just need your spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to understand, to see, to give glory to you in this, to be honest with ourselves about what we do and do not know. We're asking that you help us work through the text and that in the end of all of this, you draw us back to yourself. Jesus, please speak through your word today. Spirit, please apply it. May our hearts leave here committed to following you, pursuing you, and waiting and hoping on you above everything else that this subject sometimes offers, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When you're teaching someone, it is often helpful to teach them both what something is, but also oftentimes to teach them what something is not. For example, uh, let's say that I wanted to teach you about what kinds and styles of men's clothing and accessories are cool for men to wear, because there's probably no one in this room more qualified to do that than myself. Let's say that's the subject, and let's say I'll start with sunglasses. It would certainly be helpful to show you what is cool, right? This guy and his sunglasses, they are cool. But it would also be helpful potentially to show you what is not cool. This is not cool, okay? Cool? Not cool. Any questions? Um, let's move on to a different uh, area of men's fashion. Let's go to the area of gloves. Men don't wear gloves much anymore, but you got to admit, these gloves here are pretty cool. His hat and his vest, I'm not so sure about, but the gloves that he's wearing, pretty cool. These, while awesome in their own right, are not cool. Cool. <laughs> Not cool, okay? Any questions on that? Uh, I, I was in a store. This, both of those pictures there were taken in Williamsburg. We were in a store, uh, and I saw this, and I picked it up, and I'm like, I, I have a question about this. Who in the world came up with hander pants? I mean, I'm picturing a bunch of guys sitting around in a college dorm room, and they're all laughing about this, and they're making jokes, but one of them in the room, unbeknownst to all the others, is, is an entrepreneur at heart, and is like, I just found a way to make a million dollars right here selling hander pants. All right. Uh, I guess if you wore them under your cool gloves, that would be appropriate, but I digress. My, my point is, is that there is a time in teaching when sometimes it's helpful to show you both what something is and what it is not. And that, of course, is what we find Jesus doing here with the disciples. Last Sunday, I introduced this chapter to us, and it is a very unique chapter in Mark uh, for a couple of reasons. First, it is one of only two extended periods of teaching that you find in the book of Mark. As you look at all of the, the references uh, to Jesus talking or teaching or responding to things in Mark, and the vast, vast, vast majority of them are just 
simple one sentence, two sentence, three at most kind of responses. You see that over and over again in different situations that are coming up. He heals someone, he says something, he does something, etc. Very rarely do we see anything long, and only twice in the entire gospel do you have an entire chapter, as we would think of it, dedicated to his teaching. The first one that we saw was back in chapter 4, where Jesus told a number of parables about the kingdom of God. Do you remember that section there? And we call these extended teaching sessions discourses. And in that particular discourse, one of the main themes that kept coming up through that time was the, the need to hear. I mean, if you would go back into chapter 4 and look, you would see that he opens that whole section by telling people to listen. He says stuff there like, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He tells them that the reason he uses parables is that some will hear but, but will not understand. He talks about those who hear the word and accept it. There with the parable of the, the sower. Uh, he tells them to pay attention to what they hear. Over and over again, you get this idea that hearing is kind of the main theme of that very first discourse. Well, this is the second and last discourse in Mark. It has been given a name by some that I want you to know so that if you hear it in the future, you know what they're referring to. It's called the Olivet Discourse. Olivet because it happens on the Mount of Olives Discourse. Because it's a discourse, not everything's complicated. So Olivet Discourse is the idea there. And, and so this chapter is unique. Uh, excuse me, one of the reasons this chapter is unique is because it also has a sensory theme running through it, except this time it's not hearing, this time it's seeing. I mean, if you just look through this, you'll see a number of references to, to, references to this idea. Sometimes he just talks about seeing, or he commands them to see something. In fact, I think the very first word of verse 5 is see. Uh, sometimes he refers to, or tells them to watch, or to be on guard, the idea of looking, watching. Other times he, he tells them to stay awake, and again, the intent there is that of looking, watching, being alert to what's going on around them. And so this chapter is unique because of, it's one of only two discourses in the entire book of Mark, and each of those two discourses has a theme, and we'll come back to that in the future. Secondly, it's unique because it's really the only time in Mark's gospel where you see Jesus spending a great amount of time talking about the subject of the end. And yet, as I say that to you, you need to understand that my statement needs to be uh, nuanced in order to be properly and fully understood. Now, I introduced you to this concept last week when I walked us through the first four verses of Mark 13 here. It begins with Jesus coming out of the temple and thus bringing an end, in Mark at least, to this period of time here in his final week on earth where he's been in the temple teaching and interacting with people and observing and pronouncing judgment. All of that that started in chapter 11, verse 12, is ending here in chapter 13. And on their way out, the disciples, as you can see, point out the amazing engineering and the beautiful design of this complex known as the temple. But Jesus doesn't respond with any of their shared enthusiasm. Rather, he responds by telling them, as you see here in verse 2, that everything they see will, at some point in the future, be completely and totally destroyed. Not one stone will be left sitting on another. And as I said to you last week, as we read those words, we need to try to hear them with the disciples' ears because this would have been an earth-shattering concept to them. And I think you can see a little of its impact on them by the sheer fact that they make no response to Jesus until after some time has passed. I mean, as you look into chapter 3, you see they're now well out of the city. They're up sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking out over the temple complex. I don't know how long it would take you to walk from wherever this was said up the mountain, but I'm going to just... 
take a stab in the dark, 30 minutes at least, if not a little longer, to come out of the city, around, up the mountain, finally stop, sit down. I mean, some time has passed now, and it's finally at this point that Peter, James, John, and Andrew, as you can see here, ask him privately, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And as I asked you last Sunday, and I'm just trying to get us back into the flow here, I ask you again today, what exactly are they wanting Jesus to tell them? And the answer is very, very simple. They want to know the signs and the times of the end. End, end, end. Trying to make it ominous for you there. But it's really strange if you think about it, right? Because Jesus didn't say anything about the end, end, end. No, he... He just told them that the temple was going to be destroyed. That's all he talked about. And yet, when they hear that, when they think about that, they, they instantly equate this. Somehow, in their minds, coming from their worldview, they equate the destruction of the temple to the end of the world, and so they ask this question. Now, Mark doesn't make it explicitly clear in the way that he records the question that that is their intent. However, as you look at Jesus' response throughout the rest of the chapter, it is clear that Jesus understands that to be the point because he answers it both ways, both about the destruction of the temple and the end of the world. If you go over to Matthew, Matthew does make it explicitly clear because he records their question like this, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So there... If you had any questions, it's 100% clear. They see these two events as being one. The day the temple is destroyed will be the day the world ends. That's just their, their baseline assumption. And so, in Jesus' answer to them, one of the main things that he needs to do is he needs to correct their wrong assumptions on this specific point. Despite their worldview, despite their upbringing, despite everything that they have thought and assumed their entire lives, uh, the destruction of the temple does not equal the end of the world. And so, beginning here in verse 5, we're going to watch Jesus begin to purposefully separate these two ideas and then answer their original question in relation to each idea, as well as give them or admonish them, uh, give them some instructions or admonish them on how to live in relation to each set of answers that he gives them. And so as I'll argue or explain in more detail next Sunday, Jesus is going to begin here by discussing the destruction of the temple. And you're saying, how do you know that? Come back next week, and we'll talk about it more then. But he's going to begin by discussing the destruction of the temple. And even though they had asked him to explain what the signs and times of, of that was, he begins by telling them the signs and times that it is not. In verse 5, Mark writes that Jesus began to say to them, See, hear it? See, just make note, every time you see that word or some concept of it, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumor of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. He, he begins by walking through five specific signs of the destruction of the temple that are not signs at all. Sign number one here is general spiritual deception. 
He says, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And I would ask you to answer two specific questions from the perspective of Mark and his original audience. First, who is the he in I am he? Who who is he talking about? Well, clearly he's talking about the Messiah. Just as Jesus is the Messiah, is the Christ, there will be many who will come and say, I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. I am the Deliverer that Israel has been waiting for for years. So this is a reference to people making false claims of being the Messiah. Second question, many of who will be led astray? And this is kind of important for us in thinking about this. In other words, what group would be receptive to the message of people claiming to be the Messiah so that they would follow them and, and put hope in them, etc.? Well, I'll give you a hint. It's not Gentiles. And I don't want to take for granted that everyone in here knows what a Jew and a Gentile is, so let me just make it very clear. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. Okay, there's two, two realms. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. The vast, vast majority of us in this room, no doubt, are, are Gentiles. There may be one or two, but that's it. So if you're not a Jew... You're a Gentile, and it's not the Gentiles who would be receptive to this message because Gentiles couldn't care less about the coming of an Old Testament Messiah. It's not their religion. It's not their world. It's not anything that they've ever thought about, heard about, or cared about. And so I think the only people that it possibly can be here are the Jews. Jesus is describing an occurrence of false messiahs coming to the Jewish people and leading many astray. And if you just drop down to the last sentence of verse 7 for just a moment... I want you to understand that the statement he makes there at the end of verse 7 applies to both of the things above this. And so we can apply it here. The coming of false messiahs and the deception of the Jewish people, uh, many of the Jewish people, is not a sign of the end, he's saying to them. It's just not. This has to take place, but the end is not yet. This is not the sign. This is not the time. Second sign is armed conflict. When you hear of wars and rumor of wars, don't be alarmed. Pretty straightforward, right? War, armed conflicts, they're not the sign. And when they occur, it's not a harbinger of the time. This has to take place. The end is not yet. Number three, political intrigue or upheaval. I think that's the distinction being made here when he says that nations rise against nations, kingdom against kingdoms. These things are somehow distinct from the wars and rumor of wars that we just saw. And so I believe it has to do more with political changes that would occur in the world around the disciples. And again, if you drop down to verse 8, that final statement there, I think, applies to each thing said above it. Political changes in the world are but the beginnings of the birth pains. And I just want to pause and take note of that statement because it is very uh, picturesque, is it not? Um, to use an analogy I think will be clear to us and is particularly appropriate in a context like Cornerstone where we have children daily around here. Um, he's calling these things the Braxton Hicks of the destruction of the temple. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm actually trying to help you understand it. If you don't have children or it's been so long that you forgot what that is, Braxton Hicks are just, they're, they're false labor pains. Uh, they're sometimes called practice contractions. It's the, it's the way that God has designed the woman's body to prepare for the real moment of labor, right? There's pain in them. There's a sense of it being real, but it's not the, it's not the real deal just yet. It's it's just the beginning. More is to come. Uh, it's giving you a taste. Does that make sense? These acts of political upheaval that you see and hear about, they're just the Braxton Hicks of the destruction of the temple that's coming. They're not the real labor. These things are not the signs. This is not the time. 
Number four, he talks about natural disasters. There'll be earthquakes in various places. And in first century thought, earthquakes were particularly considered to be uh, indicators, ominous indicators of God's displeasure or anger. Nope, they're not it either. Braxton Hicks as well. Number five, human suffering. There'll be famines. Whole areas, regions, nations even will suffer. These things are Braxton Hicks too. They're not the signs of the destruction of the temple, nor are they the times. Now, let me just pause here and try to help us think about this a little bit practically for a moment in our particular context, particularly related to human nature and our understanding of the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Again, as I will argue in more detail next Sunday, Jesus is talking here very specifically about the literal destruction of the temple. He's not talking about the end of the world yet. That issue is going to come up later here in the text. For the moment, we're just talking about the temple being destroyed. And as I've already told you, one of the purposes of this discussion is to correct the wrong assumptions of the disciples in relation to the destruction of the temple as well as as to the end of the world. And in light of that, I find it interesting that Jesus feels the need at this moment with these guys to list out these kinds of things to his disciples as not being the signs and times of the destruction of the temple. They don't tell you that it's coming. They don't give you any sense of when that event will occur. It strikes me because human nature tends to gravitate to these kinds of things when we think about biblical prophecy and their fulfillment, do we not? I mean, just think about them. Spiritual deception, armed conflict, uh, political upheaval, natural disasters, human suffering. I think you would be very hard-pressed to find a person, uh, a teacher, in the, a false prophet of Jesus' uh, final return in the past 50 years who has not used these five things to explain or argue why Jesus is coming back on such and such, such, and such a date. We, we've all seen this. Well, Jesus is going to come back on such and such a date, and I know this because, and they give you one of these categories. It's really acting almost like a, a checklist of the things that, that false teachers like to point to to try to deceive people and draw the attention to themselves and away from Christ. You know, the church is in spiritual decline. Jesus is coming back. Uh, there's war in the Middle East. Jesus is coming back. Uh, The liberals won a major victory politically. Jesus is coming back. A disaster occurs somewhere in the world. Jesus is coming back. You're laughing, but it's not really funny. It's actually being pretty honest with what we hear and see in the world around us, in the Christian world around us. We've all heard these kinds of things. And I point this out not to deny that these kinds of things may or will occur in connection to the end. That's not my point at all. Rather, I point this out to show you your own heart and to warn you to not give undue attention to these kinds of things. You see, we have been called to set our minds on Christ, not on these things. We've been commanded, as we'll see later in Mark here, to be watching for him not for these special telling events that'll give us some clue as to what's to come. That that Jesus himself points these things out as not being the signs of the destruction of the temple tells me that at the very least, he recognized this danger in the hearts of his own disciples. And if it was in the hearts of his disciples regarding this lesser event, to refer to it that way, then certainly it is in our hearts to 
in reference to the greater event, I think. I, I think we just have a real danger here. Now, that little aside aside, return to the text. After having given them this list of things that do not answer their original question. What was the original question? Show us the times and signs. Jesus now gives them five things that are not the times and signs. Okay, So having not answered their question, Jesus now turns the conversation in an unexpected direction to what they will experience during this time between his teaching and the destruction of the temple. He says here in verse 9, but be on your guard. And there again, I would point out to you this idea of being on guard is, is similar to the idea of watching and looking. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious before him what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But let's take note of three things here. First, and, and I think most importantly, for a proper understanding of the majority of what we just read, Remember again, and I sound like a broken record, I apologize. Remember again that the context of this warning, of this exhortation, is about the time period between when Jesus is saying it and the destruction of the temple. You know, what would be a really interesting study, if any of you want to go kind of deeper with this? I think it would be really interesting to take, I did this in my mind, but not like in a, a thorough way, to take these five verses here list them out, and then go through the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament epistles and see all the various ways in which what Jesus talks about here comes to pass in those early days of the church. If you did that comparison, you would see that everything Jesus describes here to his disciples comes to pass perfectly. They're turned over to councils and synagogues and governors and kings for their allegiance to Christ. Think of Paul. Paul before Felix, Paul before Festus, Paul before the high priest, the Sanhedrin. I mean, he's in front of all these groups as are Peter and many others. Uh, they did in those moments bear witness to the gospel. They preach. They preach Jesus in those moments. They call these people to come to faith and repentance to Christ. Uh, you would read in Acts about amazing testimonies of men who are filled with the Spirit of God, who proclaim it in these moments of accusation before their accusers. Think of Stephen. Right before he's stoned, he's filled with the Spirit and he preaches to them. And they are pricked in their conscience and take up stones and kill him. You'd find relatives turning on relatives. You'd find some put to death, hated for the name of Christ. These verses... I don't know that this is the intent of them per se, but they can certainly act as a synopsis of the experience of the early church. And I don't think it's inappropriate for us to read them as such. Secondly, I would draw your attention to a very specific comment here in verse 10. Jesus says that during this time, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And this, this trips people up because they don't know how to understand that or read that properly. You see, and, and stick with me for a moment because you're going to pick up your own stones and throw them at me when I first say this, you cannot read this hyper-literally. Now, you're going, huh? <laughs> Can I give you a quick analogy in English and then we'll come back? And if I tell you, hey, guys, it's time to hit the road, I hope none of you go out there and start banging your fist on the asphalt, right? 
like that would be reading or taking my phrase there hyper literally. I want you to hit the road. No, I'm not. What am I actually telling you to do? Get out, leave, go, move, okay? It's an idiom. It's a phrase. It's kind of a, a way of talking. This is the same thing. Because if you read this hyper literally to think it means each and every individual nation on the earth, you're not reading it the way that the New Testament writers used and understood of this phrase. Literally in Greek, it means, it reads in, to all the ethne. Now you know the Greek word ethne, even if you don't know Greek. What English word do we get from the Greek word ethne? Ethnic, okay? To all the, to all the ethnics, to all the peoples, to all the nations. It, it's a general sense of just not being just with the Jews, of going out to the Gentile world. And it's, it's a way that this, the New Testament writers talked. I'll give you an example, just so you can see that I'm not making this up. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17, Paul writing to Timothy says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Well, you see the words here, all the Gentiles? That's the same exact Greek phrase, to all the ethne, to all the peoples, to all the nations. And note that Paul is saying here, he has fully proclaimed the message of the gospel to all the ethne so they could, could hear it. If you read that hyper literally, not taking into account the way that phrase was just commonly used, then what Paul is saying is a lie. Because Paul hasn't preached to all the Gentiles. He barely skimmed the rim of the Mediterranean world. He didn't go up into northern Europe or down into southern Africa or out into eastern Asia, not to mention Australia and the Americas. He didn't go to any of those places. He barely, from a global perspective, went anywhere. And yet he's saying that he has fully proclaimed the gospel so that all the Gentiles might hear. Do you understand the problem? If we read it hyper-literally without understanding what the original purpose and thought behind the phrase was, you, you have to believe that Paul is a liar. But of course, Paul isn't lying. All he's saying, all he means, because this is how the phrase is used at the time, is that he has taken the message out to the nations. Think of it like that, and it makes a lot more sense. He's taking it out to the peoples. He's spread the gospel to the Gentile world, those outside the people of Israel, and that message is just spreading among them. That's all Jesus means as well. That before the destruction of the temple... During this time between when, when he's saying these things and when that final judgment falls, the gospel is going to go out to the nations, to the Gentiles. And, and we're here because of the truth of that comment. The book of Acts and the rest of the things we see in the New Testament, even Paul's comment there in 2 Timothy 4, give credence that that has occurred. Third, the overall purpose of these comments is to prepare the disciples for what it is going to cost them to follow Jesus in the days ahead and to exhort them to depend on the Spirit through that. You know, two times here Jesus tells them that the things they will experience will be directly related to him. I mean, here in verse 9, the reason they will stand before all these peoples and groups is for his sake. Uh, in verse 13, the reason they will be hated by all will be for his name's sake. In other words, it's not you guys. He's like telling them in advance, look, it's nothing personal to you. <laughs> they hate me. And because you're standing for me, because you're representing me, this is what you're going to endure. I mean, Jesus would be a really bad celebrity preacher today. I was thinking about that. I mean, join me, right? If you go, you get to be persecuted, put on trial, hated, and killed. Sign up today. Um, he, he's a really terrible salesman, but he's super honest. 
Imagine if businesses were that honest, you know. Uh, Joe's, <laughs> Joe's asbestos warehouse here. Insulate your house with asbestos, and we guarantee you won't be worried about the cold next year because you'll be dead from cancer. Act now will even include two cans of lead paint, guaranteed to cause deformities and death. Call today. Um, Jesus is a terrible salesman, but he is letting them know that following him is going to come at a price. However, he's also encouraging them that they won't be alone in that process. You know, he exhorts them here to depend on the Spirit, to both stand and speak for him during this time. And I'll just, this is in my notes, I'll just make a quick comment. That's not like an ongoing forever kind of offer, I don't think. It's not like, you know, I could just not study all week, not do anything, not prepare, and just come up here on Sunday and be like, Spirit, you better work, because if you don't, it's going to be a really quick sermon. Um, you know, I think he's speaking to them directly in those moments of trial that were going to occur in the, in the early church period there. And again, you, you see that in Acts. You know, think about Peter's sermon in Acts 2, right? He doesn't, he doesn't have any prep work done. The Spirit falls on them in the upper room. He goes out and he preaches to the nations, all the Jews from all of these various nations that have gathered. And he, many come to believe. Think about Stephen's testimony to his executioners. Think about Paul's witness before Jewish and Gentile audiences alike. God's Spirit enabled them to bear witness to the faithfulness and truthfulness and power of the gospel in those early days of the church. Yes, many suffered. Yes, many died. But the gospel spread like wildfire out to the nations. Uh, folks, everything we have seen today, as I have repeated now numerous times, um, is in relation to the destruction of the temple. And it applies to this period of time, I think, between when Jesus is saying this and when the temple is finally destroyed. But, but I would highlight for you something that overlaps um, in context between that context and our own. And it is the centrality of Jesus in all of this. Um, he does not want them to spend their days trying to interpret how the many terrible events of this broken world herald the fulfillment of a specific prophecy. Let me say that again so that the impact of that statement falls on you as clearly as I can make it. He does not want them to spend their days trying to interpret how the many terrible events of this broken world herald the fulfillment of a specific prophecy. Rather, he wants them actively engaged in the spreading of the good news of who he is and what his coming and his sacrifice for us mean for this world. That's what he's telling them right now. He doesn't want them to shrink back. He doesn't want them to go hide in bomb shelters waiting for the judgment of God to fall on the temple as if that's the right response to this, this prophecy that he has made. That, no, that's not the right response at all. He wants them to go out and live for him in the midst of knowing what's coming, to go out and live. They're to go out and proclaim him because the message that they will go out and proclaim both to Jews and to all the nations will lead to the salvation of many and ultimately to the glory of God himself. You know, if, if, if even the, the, the fulfillment of this specific prophecy 
where Jesus will, as you'll see more next week, he will give them an answer to their question about signs and times. He will give them a sign, and he will give them a general sense of, of time. If even that should not cause them to shrink back or delay in their responsibility to live for Jesus in the midst of this broken world, then how much more should the fulfillment of the prophecy of the end of the world not cause us to shrink back or delay in going out to live for him and to spread the gospel to all the nations? Look, I, <clears throat> I know that some of you are studying the end times right now. I know others of you have studied it in the past. And as your pastor, as your brother, as your friend, I want to warn you all in love about your own heart and the hearts of the people that you have read or listened to in the past or in the present. If they do not draw your heart back to Jesus himself, if your heart is not filled with complete love and devotion to him through studying the subject, then it doesn't matter to me how right or wrong the opinions or beliefs you may get through that study or learning. I don't, it doesn't matter what you come to. If you've missed Jesus, you have missed the point. If you miss Jesus in this, you have missed the point. And in my personal Bible reading this week, I was reading in Titus 2, and I was reminded once again of how Jesus is our everything, even in relation to the subject. Paul writes there in verse 11, he says, the grace of God has appeared. And just stop and think about that. How can the grace of God, this concept, grace, how can it appear? It appeared in Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of the grace of God. And Jesus' appearing has brought salvation for all people. His appearing has trained us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. You want to know how to fight sin? You need Jesus and living his life through you. His appearing has trained us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. You want to grow in Christ? You need Jesus. But it is also training us and teaching us to wait for our blessed hope. And who or what? is our blessed hope. It's Jesus, the appearing of, a, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who is zealous for good works. In other words, in line with what Jesus says here in Mark, he expects that even as we wait and hope and look forward to that day, we go out and live for him. In the end, Jesus has to be everything. And so I exhort you and ask you and beg you as you study, as we study together, let's not, let's not miss him. Let's not focus on the wrong things, but focus our hearts fully and completely on him. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, again, we're just recognizing the danger that's before us, how easy it is. It's just in our hearts, I think, to to want to look for the signs and times, to want to focus on the events of this world and to not go out and live for you. You didn't want your disciples, even in relation to this, this destruction that was coming, to, to hunker down and, and get some kind of a bunker mentality where they needed to, to just stay within their own walls and, and hide away. No, they're to go out and live. They're not to live in fear of those other things. They're to go out and just simply live for you. Jesus, you know that your church has failed on this point. I, I failed on this point. We, we so easily focus our hearts and minds on all the stuff around us. And we read the headlines and we listen to preachers and teachers who want to 
draw our hearts and minds to all this other stuff and in the name of knowledge. And somehow in the midst of all of that, we just completely forget that you are our blessed hope. You, you yourself. We miss you in the midst of all of this. That is our fault. That's our, just another example to us of how broken our hearts really are. And so I pray, Jesus, that as we think about the end times, as we think about biblical prophecy, as we think about this world around us, that we don't let ourselves become distracted. The theme of this chapter is watching, looking, seeing, but not so much about the stuff, more looking, watching for you, waiting for you. And so turn our hearts to you, we ask, Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear you. Glorify Jesus in all, everything we think and do and say and believe in relation to this subject we ask in your name. Amen.